0: It's enormously condescending. It's was walking with blinders on. It's you know you're refusing to see things outside of your own cultural framework. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have m- massive problems with food systems in this country. Our food systems are absurd. Like there are there are edible plants all throughout your yard. We do not eat those. There's edible things everywhere in the world and we don't eat those. Instead we create like massive systems of transport and slaughter and industrial farms in order to feed people because we don't eat the stuff that's on the ground and we don't take the care of the environment in ways that support more food growing on the ground. It doesn't make any sense to me and we could be doing so much better and people have done so much better for you know the vast majority of human existence. Why would we? I don't know why we would give more credence to that system than 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 it deserves. It's it's very absurd, really. And to think that everyone needs to adapt to that—it's just there's so many problems. It's you know the indigenous people live in the past stereotype, and that modernization means living like a white person, whereas cultures everywhere in 2019, the tens of thousands of cultures in the world are all equally modern. It's just a ridiculous bit of like assimilationist, ethnocentric nonsense.
1: Mm-hmm. Assistant Professor Tim Frandi is an expert on Sami culture. His research focuses on cultural approaches to environmental management and human health, and especially on indigenous approaches to sustainability. He has worked extensively with indigenous communities in the Nordic region and the United States to strengthen the cultural autonomy of indigenous-led health initiatives. Tim visited the University of Washington last May and we discussed his research on the history and future of Sami fishing rights on the Diatnu River along the Norwegian-Finnish border and what happens when sustaining a Nordic way of life disrupts sustaining a Sami way of life. Welcome to Crossing North a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya-Connors.
0: Professor Kentucky Folklore My name is Tim Frandy. Uh, I am a professor of folklore studies at, the, at Western Kentucky University and I'm originally from northern Wisconsin, from Anishinaabe lands, but my family has Sami roots in the regions of Kemi Sami and Katasauvan Sami, in, mostly in Finland.
1: One of Tim's methods as a folklorist who works with indigenous communities is to assist them in their efforts to repatriate cultural knowledge lost to colonial and assimilationist pressures. For his book Inner Sámi Folklore: Stories from Anar. Tim translated a collection of Sami folk tales collected by folklorists in the late 19th century. His book explores what we can and cannot learn from these texts. One chapter of the book focuses on hunting stories. These stories have helped contemporary Sami scholars correct mainstream colonial narratives about Sami people's relationship to wild reindeer and the environment.
0: The wild reindeer population actually collapsed in the late 1700s or early 1800s, so there was this mainstay of their economy. you know several months of the year were devoted to wild reindeer hunting, and it just collapsed out of nowhere and the community didn't really know why and you know anthropologists and other you know, outsiders said, well, "Well, clearly this is overhunting that caused this as always a little suspicious about it i 'm always suspect about claims of overhunting, especially when it's with indigenous people and it's really only recently where people, some Sami scholars started pushing back on that. And they pointed out, well, you know, the um, every time you have settlers that kind of come into the area, animal populations collapse. It happened with salmon on Nor- Norwegian salmon rivers up to the Atnu. It happened with beaver when the fur trade became very big, the, like Finnish people moved up to S- Sami. Uh, rivers with beaver on and hunted the beaver to extinction. And here it's happening with wild reindeer because you've got Finnish people who are coming in from the south, burning down the forests, putting farms, and all of a sudden the wild reindeer disappear. But clearly it had to be the hunting, right? (laughs) Even though the hunting's been fine for for hundreds and hundreds of years. yeah they must have been overhunting so there's the same sustainability measure i think and you've got a technique of, for sustainable hunting and thriving reindeer populations then settlers come up put up farms and immediately it collapses and there's this racist narrative sort of over the top that clearly this is the sami people's fault for overhunting because this is a cult these are cultures that are doomed to die because hunting and gathering and reindeer herding are are ultimately inferior and will ultimately be displaced by by farming, by industry, by this so-called modern uh, economic framework. Um, so I think it's interesting that you know, the, um, this whole story follows the same pattern that you have, you've got you know indigenous sustainabilities that are working and that yet indigenous people are blamed uh, for, for their own destruction without any justification and this is accepted for well over 100 years but until it was actually finally called into question.
1: The work of revising racist colonial narratives about indigenous people and their ability to sustainably manage their natural resources is not unique to Sami people. Tim's research on Sami hunting and fishing practices were inspired by his relationship to his Anishinaabe neighbors in northern Wisconsin, where Tim grew up. In both Norway and Wisconsin, governmental policies have restricted indigenous net and spear fishing in favor of Western-style angling. This legal favoritism towards angling brought in tourists and recreational fishermen whose activities began to supplant the active traditions of local subsistence fishermen. Public concerns over fish populations, however, were mainly directed against native people. Tim's Anishinaabe neighbors were blamed for overfishing because they fished with spears despite data that spearfishing only accounted for 3% of all fish caught. The public controversy was known as the Wisconsin Walleye War, which started in the 1970s and still continues to this day.
0: So in the 1970s, the the Tribble brothers, who are tribal members from the LCO band of um, Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, or Anishinaabe people, uh, they, they were students at the time, and they purposefully went out and got themselves arrested for... Illegal fishing just off the the reservation line. They were fishing in one lake, and there was this imaginary line that crossed through the 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 lake. That one side was the reservation, one side was off the reservation, and so they started spearing just off the reservation. Uh, sure enough, some a game warden came around and knocked on their door and gave them a ticket. And they they knew from from their law professors. They were students at the time. That they could, they had treaty rights that guaranteed them to be able to fish in traditional ways in the ceded territories of northern Wisconsin and Minnesota. So they were ticketed, and the case went to court, and it went through the courts for many, many years, and until the early 1980s, 1983, if I recall, when eventually the court ruled that they had the rights to to guaranteed in, in treaties which are internationally binding documents between two sovereign nations, and so their case was dismissed. But it opened up a the ability for all these Anishinaabe bands to to spear off the reservation in traditional ways, and it exploded in northern Wisconsin. And I was a child at the time in the area, and a number of white protesters started showing up on boat landings. Um, throwing around racial slurs, um, a lot of hate speech, uh, which I certainly won't repeat. It's all available online, and it, it all sort of was hidden under the guise of conservation. One of the big leaders of this organization called Stop Treaty Abuse all, was well known to be extraordinarily racist. but. He insisted that it was about conservation. It was a very tense atmosphere to grow up in as a child. The, the communities were to- the white communities were torn apart, and people would choose sides. And I had uncles who had worked for the DNR at the time and were just trying to maintain peace on the boat landings. And lots of these issues still happen today. Even just this year, there were protests, or there were uh, spear fishermen on the lakes uh, who were shot at, and this happens regularly. And it's it's a terrible, terrible situation. Um, that continues to be um, a problem, the imminent threat of colonial violence against Native people for for practicing their own rights and practicing their own culture.
1: If the Triple Brothers law professor told them that that they had these treaty rights why were they ticketed then when they went and exercised them
0: <laughs> because we live in a colonial society and a colonial <laughs> nation and it's illegal to be native and practice native cultures you, you know by and large right um not saying that's right that's a terrible wrong but this is the reality that native people live with every every day that you know um, the free and open practicing of a native american religion was illegal in this country until 1978 which is absurd when you think about the, um, the fact that the, uh, this country was supposedly founded on the freedom of religion. Uh, but that, that's the reality of colonial societies, that the, you know, it's such a privileging of certain cultural lenses, certain cultural priorities, certain cultural values, certain cultural approaches to knowledge and science that um, it's difficult to be an indigenous person. In these societies, um, you know, conservation laws have a very distinctive history that's rooted more in cultural practice than than conservation science, right? How we approach conservation of environments is really uh, it's a cultural ga- cultural game, and it's rooted in values that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. So, in much of Western Europe, thinking like England, France, Germany. The, some of the earliest forests and earliest conservation measures that were ever practiced were restricting the forests to the wealthy. right? This is Robin Hood. Robin Hood was a poacher in the king's forest. The king would, would not allow people to hunt in the, his forest, and so Robin Hood's activities were illegal and driven underground. There's a folk hero that goes back almost a thousand years in Europe. And this was this was practiced widely. The you know the the game was set aside for the privilege of the king and the aristocracy. And if you're poor, you don't have access to this, because they were concerned that the poor people were taking all the resources. And this is still a living concern today. The poor bear disproportionate uh, irresponsibility, unjustifiably so, for the the protection of game resources. The people who need the meat are blamed for the depletion of the environment. Whereas you can very easily look at other sources, you can look at, in the term in terms of fish, you can look at aquatic develop, uh, shoreline development, which destroys critical habitat. You can look at boat traffic, which destroys weed bed structures and dumps pollutants into the lake. You can look at coal, which contaminates uh, the waters with mercury from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. You can look at, in the case of the Dayatnu River, how people walk in the river and disturb spawning beds. You can look at people who pull off out brush from the lake so it looks nice and neat, but they're destroying critical habitat for um, minnow growth and, and shelter. Uh, there there's many, um, there's many alternative strategies in indigenous cultures that people use to protect the environment that were not integrated into the Western systems. So, whereas the West first they try to re- restrict by by privilege, then later they, they try to um, restrict by size or gender of, of species. So, if you're hunting deer, bucks only because it's a manly competition. But that's that's not a universal value, and it's guised, it's this. This is something that's healthy for the reproduction of the species, but it's also uh, somewhat problematic because is is very much rooted in this like hunting is a, a combat between a, man and animal sort of mentality that just doesn't exist in a lot of cultures around the world. When I was working with a uh, jur- Sami journalist named Nilo Vuamayoki, he he told this beautiful story about how he uh, when he was a teenager his his there was sort of this restricted area. He said his his father his elders would never let him go into this part of the river and he never understood why, and he said, he, "Well, he was a teenager and thought I can do what I want because teenager." And one time, he, he went back into this restricted area. He walked through the forest, and he knew that the river was back there, and he was shocked at what he saw. He said, "There was this. It was a still water, uh, and within the still water, it, it, there was like a flowering sandy shoreline, and in the water were hundreds and hundreds of salmon spawning. It was critical habitat." It was essential for the survival of the salmon. They needed that area to be off limits to people. They needed it to to rest and be in peace so they could reproduce naturally in this pristine, healthy space. He said I remember what he said. He said, it was like a sacred area. That's that's marked, that's sacred, that's restricted, that's not for us. And he understood why he wasn't supposed to go back there. And he and now today today, that sense of restricted place is very infrequently used in Western-style game management. Um, and why not? I mean, why, why don't we do that? Why don't we have areas that are more areas that are off limits? Why don't we use uh, indigenous systems of resting waters for five years to let them recover before we open them up for, for, for increased harvest, for more harvesting again? Um, these techniques, they're just not used very often. And um, I think that they can be very effective. And I think they can, they can be used in ways that strengthen indigenous cultures, indigenous values, and sort of create m- more multicultural and diverse lenses and approaches to the sciences.
1: Hmm. What is the Sami method of fishing on the Diatnu?
0: Well, there are many methods that were used traditionally on the Diatnu River. Um, the Sami method was usually to fish with nets and most outsiders think that fishing with nets is destructive because it takes too many fish. But uh, there's different ways you can fish with nets. You can use uh, like drift nets which or gill nets, which are set up to be stationary, that the fish just pass through. You can fish with a seine, which is a sort of net that you pull and you create a circle and you catch fish in like this bag-like structure. Uh, or you can fish with the boathu or the fish dam technique, which is very common on the Dayatnu River. And that technique, uh, you, you basically make a sort of brush barricade, which caused the fish to look for a hole to get through the brush. And then you channel, sort of channel them and push them into uh, uh, like a purse net that, that they'll all get trapped in at the end. And that's one of the most common ways of fishing on the Dayot New River. And that's one of the techniques that is most under attack today.
1: And why is it under attack?
0: Because out tourists think that that's getting all the fish. Um, traditionally, these these netting techniques were used on all all the rivers in Sápmi, and the Sam- Sami people kept the rivers healthy for thousands of years. And you don't see environmental depletion and salmon stock depletion until waves of tourists start coming up from Great Britain gentlemen anglers, they would call, and first they exhausted all the rivers in Scotland, and then they jumped to Norway in the early eighteen hundreds. And river by river, they would go up and they would catch thousands and thousands of pounds of salmon, take them out of the rivers. They'd they'd angle, they'd walk in the rivers, they'd walk in the shores, they just and they kept pushing further and further north, and the salmon on all, each of those rivers started declining, and. You know, maybe it's a net effect, maybe it's a cumulative effect, but wherever outsiders are coming to fish, it causes this destruction, and that's been a pattern now for for more than two hundred years, that people just don't really want to admit.
1: So, do Sami people have treaty rights to fishing? No. Why not?
0: (laughs) Because there are no treaties. Sami people were recognized as a sovereign nation at various points in history. Um, a lot of people like to think that indigenous rights, that things are always improving, right? It's the progress myth we tell ourselves. Back in the past, people were not as sophisticated. They'd had less understanding of the world than we do now. But that's not always the case. Sometimes things get worse. Sometimes things get worse. And throughout the Middle Ages, Sami people basically were recognized as sovereign people. And it's really only when the Enlightenment comes in into the Nordic states, where Sami people are not treated as sovereign nations; they're uh, seen as lesser subjects than, than than Swedes, lesser than Norwegians. And then eventually, this leads uh, through, from I suppose the seventeen hundreds through the early twentieth century into policies of forced assimilation, and. Um, because of this history, Sami people don't have rights in the, in the same way that native people have rights uh, because there's been this disrecognition. The state won't even acknowledge now, the state struggles to acknowledge that they ever acknowledge Sami people as sovereign or indigenous people. In Sweden, there state lawyers were arguing that Sami people aren't indigenous people uh, on behalf of the state. This is our contemporary times and we, we act like there's progress. Well, in some ways, things were better five hundred years ago in terms of Sami rights and um, I think it's it's dangerous to tell ourselves otherwise.
1: So when did things really start to change with fishing rights?
0: There's a long history of regulating the Dayatna River, <clears throat> and I think it starts local control always used to reign supreme until you start having outsiders come in, right. And when the British gentleman anglers started showing up at these rivers, uh, they started complaining that all the the people fishing with nets are taking all the fish that's unsporting, because you, know, you have to compete with the fish for some reason. Uh, I don't compete with my potatoes when I dig them up from my garden, I don't compete with my blueberries when I pick them from the forest, but fish are apparently different. And so they decided that it was very um, ignoble and lowly to, to harvest with nets. And so they, they started putting pressure, um, which was adapted by you know ethnic Norwegians, that, well, this is not good for the environment to allow people to take fish in this way. And as the 1800s progressed, towards the end of the 1800s, there's increased pressure on Sami people to act like Norwegians. The state confiscates. Or steals essentially all Sami lands, they become crown lands under control of the state. And the, state, the Norwegian state wants to homestead these lands out as was happened in the US. And then they found out that Sami people were homesteading their own lands back and they didn't want that to happen. So they said, well, to homestead you have to speak Norwegian as your first language at home. So they did language tests on this. And so then Sami people started speaking Norwegian at home, so they could reacquire the lands that were already theirs to begin with, uh, you know, in very in small percentage, in small proportion. And eventually, um, I believe I forget what year it is. I think it's 1907. the The first um, the Hay Laws are are passed, and the Hay Laws um, started requiring Sami people or anyone that if you're going to fish for salmon on the Deatnu. With a boato, with a fish dam, that you're required to be a farmer, that you're required to grow and cut uh, 2,000 kilogram of hay per year, and the purpose of this was, you know, of course, to 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 force assimilation uh, on Sami people, right? Because the cultural logic, the colonial logic at play, was once Sami people start farming, they won't want to be fishermen or reindeer herders anymore. And uh, of course, this, this is this is before there are roads in, in the area, so this is very difficult to enforce. And nothing much happens and nobody really pays much mind to this until the roads start getting built into these communities. And more and more tourists are starting to take advantage of these roads and come north like from, from Finland, lots of Finnish tourists were, were coming up to fish because they're in the mid-20th century, the 1950s, all the Finnish salmon rivers are being dammed up and the salmon stocks are collapsing. And so after the tourists come up, they start enforcing these laws because they want well there's these laws on the books and you should be cutting hay to fish. And so that by the 1970s these laws are really starting to be enforced for the first time. These racist assimilatory uh, laws are coming to be enforced at the same time that you know, multiculturalism is, is, and you know, indigenous pride is starting to flourish on an international stage. Um, so today, today these things are very considerably regimented because there's much fishing pressure on the day out new and have been since the 1990s. And uh, so you have to cut hay if you live on the Norwegian side if you want to have those fishing rights.
1: It sounds like a catch twenty two that in order to fish you have to have a different livelihood.
0: If you want to be Sami, you have to be Norwegian first. <laughs> that's sort of yes. It's definitely a catch twenty-two.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I think that brings up an idea that a lot of Norwegians and Finns like to pride themselves on, you know, the idea of fairness or equality, because the tourists say, "Hey, it's it's not fair that that Sami person can fish without paying." for a license like me. You know, it's not fair according to the rules. They should be producing however many kilograms of hay. So the discussion is always about fairness and equality, but they're only considering what's fair within the rules of the game. They're not considering whether the rules themselves are fair or, you know, whether those rules were written with any sense of justice in mind. Um, what are the rules like in Finland
0: on the Finnish side of the river there's it's quite a bit different. Uh, many people do speak of Sami having special netting rights on the day Atnu, uh, which isn't exactly accurate in Finland, there are special rights that are tied to land parcels throughout the country so if i have if my family has lived on such and such a lake for three hundred years and we've always netted that night that those netting rights will be tied to the parcel of land that we own and they can be transmitted from generation to generation. So unlike the US where it's uh, in a state, everyone has the, essentially the similar rights to fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Finland, if you've lived on a parcel of land for a long time or, or if you own a parcel of land, you maybe will have these special netting rights that are attributed for this one lake. You know, Other people can come in and angle, but maybe you can use nets. And so that's the same system that happens up there uh, on the. It, day, so, it
1: sounds like the same uh, system that happens occasionally in the U.S. when we talk about grandfathering rights into a place. That if people have been picking mushrooms for a long time uh, in a place, that when that place gets turned into a state park, that they might allow that. This is an example from California where otherwise you can't pick mushrooms in in state parks.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's exactly what it is: grandfathering the, those rights in. Um, it it also it's a better system. I think I like I like many things about that system, but it also causes problems because if you if you have netting rights and you own a piece of land and perhaps maybe you've got three or four children, which one of them gets those rights? Which one get? Well, which one gets the parcel of land? And that parcel person who owns the parcel of land gets those rights. So maybe you've got somebody who, the person who fishes needs to move out of the area. Maybe they want to work at a university. Maybe they need to move to the city for a job and they lose their fishing rights because they don't have opportunity in their hometown and maybe the person who owns the land has a decent decent work in the area but has no time to fish. So it, it, that produces a number of problems too. There's There's not much flexibility in that system. <laughs> Um, and it also it's very individualistic. How many people always would would fish as a community? Surplus salmon were shared equally among the community. They were d- redistributed in um, equally. and um, everyone would work together to, fr- to, to produce salmon. and that sort of undermines a lot of that when you're saying that fishing rights are linked specifically to individuals.
1: So what is the legal situation like today?
0: Well, we could look at the the recent court decision that was passed down. It was in March of this year, 2019, where fishing rights after the very restrictive agreement of 2017, which reduced some people's net fishing rights uh, by about 80% um, through various regulations imposed on Sami fishermen. but this in March or April of this year there, there was a court case that was won by um, a number of women and children actually who were fishing illegally right in the in the Dayatno tributaries and it was ruled that uh, because fishing is a cultural practice and Norway has ag- agreed as a, as a nation that to safeguard Sami culture that Sami people actually had a right to, to fish uh, in their own waters in their own traditional way. The ramifications of this are yet to be seen. Uh, I think you know, lawyers and judges don't, and Sami people don't know exactly what it means yet. Uh, I know we know what it should mean: that Sami people should be able to fish and practice their culture in ways in on Sami lands and Sami ways to preserve Sami indigenous futures. Um, the state will uh, will appeal this, and they're going to argue against it to say that well, fishing is environmental in nature and it's not cultural and who gets to control what it means to maintain an environment. Well, Norway is going to claim that right as their own even though Sami people have demonstrated um, great sophistication for thousands of years in managing their environment in sustainable ways. so I mean Norway has been arguing for years and years that fishing is, you know, it's in more environmental and not cultural, but I mean I think all environmental management is cultural. You can't manage an environment without making putting values in your choices and your decisions. What are you creating when you're managing your environment? What are you what are you looking to grow? Who, what are you protecting? I mean even something like in, in invasive species, you know, are are a very colonial concept, right, in in the United States. Invasive species are anything that enters the United States after 1492. Um, And in in Sámi, the Norwegians and Swedes and Finns have said that Sámi are going to destroy their, their environment. They've said this for 100 years or more. Like, oh, your reindeer are too many. You're going to ruin your environment. It's fine. It's still fine. The reindeer are doing great. You can look at their health, you can look at their layers of fat, they're eating well. Things are okay. But there's this imminent sense of demise that's carried over by this, this myth of human evolution that people will no longer be able to live by hunting and gathering or by reindeer herding. They're going to have to modernize. The death of an indigenous people is imminent. It's a long-standing bunch of nonsense that people have been telling themselves for hundreds of years uh, in order to justify the... Uh, colonial um, appropriation of indig- indigenous lands and rights. If you say that this society is doomed, then it gives you a logical reason to to take the lands, to take over the policy management, and to do whatever you want. It's not based in, in, in facts or reality. It's based in the desire for control and power. and But it's based in the ethnocentrism that you see in Nordic and all colonial societies, that there is a right way to manage land, and that is dictated by the colonial society itself. I feel like compelled to talk a little bit about the, um, uh, the shifts that happened in game management in the US. Mm-hmm. I um, sort of got derailed from that a little bit earlier but one of the things that happened in the, the US in terms of managing fishing and hunting licenses it all emerged in sort of in response to the massive environmental devastation that occurred with the near extinction of the buffalo and other game species and with the generation of conservationists like the hunter conservationists you know aldo leopold or teddy roosevelt or john muir like it came out of this necessity, and it also sort of linked this like massive grotesque overhunting with environmental depletion or or you know population collapse of animals and and fish. And that's really stuck. Um, and we sort of have this like strange mentality, I think today that the people who are responsible for the fish are only the people who extract the fish. You know, it's not the people who. Uh, dump pollution into the water. It's not the people who build who destroy the shoreline or destroy their habitat, even not even aware that they might be, you know, destroying it or having a lawn right up to the aquatic system, which dumps like, you know, lawn chemicals into into the water. And so, you know, these license fees the people have pay pay uh, to fish and hunt they they're channeled into conservation efforts, which is great, right? But it, it's also sort of this like assumption that it's people who hu- extract animals from the species to eat them who are entirely responsible for environmental damage and it's not you know it's not corporate entities it's not people who own property it's not people who change land it's not people who deforest the the forest it's you know um, it's just the hunters it's their their fault but th- I don't think it's a very accurate rendition of this very complicated uh, way that
1: ecosystems actually work okay so then you, Get this idea that if native people are taking the fish resource without paying money for permits back in to pay for conservation, then they are taking without replenishing.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's an idea. Right. And a lot of people... Oh, you see that with like the Macaw whale hunt, right? Like um, where, <clears throat> of, of course, you know, Macaw people should have their own cul- culture, say the non-native um, protesters to this event, but they're not supposed to actually kill anything. They're supposed to be environmentalists. And what environmentalists, what it means to be an environmentalist is to be acting like a white environmentalist. It's not regarding, it doesn't involve regarding the whale as sacred. It doesn't involve ritual hunt. It involves, you know, a very white rendition of farming and tree hugging. And that's not what everybody does. And our conservation laws are are bound into this racist legacy of what it means to conserve. And that sometimes means not hunting or not extracting. But I mean, fundamentally humans need to extract to survive. We need food to eat, whether that's meat or plant. You know, we eat or be eaten. This is the world. And we have to we have to eat, but we also have to let ourselves be eaten and we have to, you know, be part of this and be good team players with you know our our older brothers and
1: sisters, the plants, the
0: animals, and so on.
1: So, what should environmentalists do if they want to be allies?
0: I think environmentalists and um, anyone working in the ecological sciences in general, I think the hard pill to swallow that most people um, might be hesitant to hear is that is to understand that science is all science is ethno science and that you've learned science within a cultural framework to approach problems in certain cultural ways to ask questions that reflect certain cultural values to generate information that helps address certain culturally based priorities um and I think it, I mean it is a matter of listening and recognizing your own bias. You know every other f- discipline, aside from the sciences, you know, and has recognized that cultural relativism matters. We do that in the humanities. We recognize that in the social sciences. But the scientists the, many scientists are sort of immune from seeing that criticism of themselves. And I think that there needs to be an opening for that, to realize the, that culture informs science absolutely in all cases. I think the other thing, big lesson to learn is that the many models for contemporary collaboration are inadequate. I've seen it many times in the field of sustainability studies where people call for indigenous people to have a seat at the table. A seat at the table is good, but it doesn't really address the disparities of power. That are endemic in these relationships. You can, I, mean, I can sit at a table, and you can, you can serve up, you can cut that meat however you want. And you can serve me the tiniest little bit be- bit of meat, but I want to be able to cut that meat. You know, I want, I want a real say. I want real power. And a seat at the table doesn't guarantee your doesn't guarantee you have that power. It doesn't guarantee you'll be listened to. And even things like Sami parliaments are advisory bodies who, that don't need to be taken seriously, that don't have actual real mandate to enact Sami policy in Sami ways using Sami methods. And we need to have a gut check that you can't equalize power without surrendering power. Point blank. That's what it is. You're never going to do that. You need Sami people running Sami affairs. Sami people calling shots, indigenous people calling shots. And until we receive, until we get that point, it's just another move to white innocence, move to colonial innocence, where we're never going to fix the problems, but boy, we'll sure feel better about ourselves, right? And that's that's no way to be, and that's no way to, to fix really difficult problems in the world.
1: Yeah. I like that metaphor because I've noticed that decolonization is becoming a popular concept, but often what's being discussed is a seat at the table. It's not who's holding the knife. It's, you know, diversifying the press photograph without actually changing who's in charge. And that's not decolonization. Decolonization is ending the federal practice of holding tribal lands in trust, Which prevents tribes from independently managing their own lands, as if they were children. Yes. So, so yeah, I feel I feel like you you explained it perfectly. Um,
0: I do think that there are, um, well, there's there's two things to consider. Um, One of which is the celebrate diversity model for, for cultural work, and there's risk in that. Uh, you know it's, it's great right it sounds good it's a good sound bite there's nothing wrong with it but if if everything celebrating diversity is about just the col- colorful spectrum of human experience it's very surface level and you and I think it's uh, you see it expressed in the, the fact that when people are interested in Sami culture a lot of times the first things they're interested in are, are, are bright colored gakti or clothing or in yoik song which sounds very exotic to outsiders. And they they want to see that cultural experience, right? But they don't actually want to surrender real power over land rights, or say your sciences are valid in the same way that all you know all ethno sciences are valid. And I I have concerns over that the people who who want to just celebrate, because I think it's a way to it's a, it's one of these moves to innocence where you can act like you're multicultural, but you're not actually surrendering. Any real space for alternative epistemological frameworks, for alternative worldviews, for alternative uh, knowledge traditions to exist within something like a university, something like a government, so there's no real surrendering of power that actually takes place there.
1: Well, celebrating, like teeters on exotifying and fetishizing mm-hmm. people, not seeing them as equal people with their own agency, but just something for me to enjoy looking at. I'm celebrating you, but I'm not that interested in what you want to celebrate or it, what you value. Exactly. And especially for
0: those of us who don't actually like being on stage for other people. I don't, I don't want people looking at me and gawking at me in that sort of way. That's very uncomfortable. I just want to be left alone so I can live in my own peace and, and, and have my lakes to fish in and have my woods to be in and live my own simple life. I don't want to be somebody else's pet. That's, that's, that's gross <laughs> for me. I can't do it. Yeah. I don't even like standing in front of a room. <laughs> um, but you do hear this critique sometimes in insomnia in terms of Sami culture. In, in the film Gatagantat, The Beach Boys, which I know you've seen, uh, one of the uh, final lines in the film is eventually they'll, they'll allow us to have Sami culture be nothing but gakti and yoiking and we'll no longer get to practice our fishing and practice our, our real culture because they want these colorful displays. And I think that that speaks powerfully to the nature of colonization right? Colonization is mutable and it's protean. It's like this amoeba blob that will come over your culture and it, Where if once you gain leverage against it, it will be attacking you from a different direction. So a hundred years ago, colonization meant we're going to take away your land rights, we're going to make sure you never speak your language, we're going to stigmatize your clothing and your religion. No way. And now, People say, "Well, okay, well, you can have your clothing, you can have your yoik singing, which was formerly branded as diabolical, and maybe you can do your religion too, because I think we're okay with that finally after 1990, even though it's already internalized, still stigmatized in the community because of lateral violence. But we're not going to let you have your land rights. You know, it's always shifting, and it's you know you can call it neocolonialism, you can call it just plain old colonialism." but it's it's a beast, and it's all about maintaining social power, and it's all about finding ways to pretend like you're giving concessions. We've look how much we've progressed because now Sami people can actually wear clothes that they want. That's not progress at all. it's It's especially not progress if you're saying you can wear your clothing, but we are never going to have your fishing rights again. I'd take fishing rights. Both are important. I'd still take fishing rights. Um, but that's just me. That's the colonial beast, though. It, it it's always moving. That's it's always moving to to guarantee that the power remains in the
1: hands of the powerful. Yeah. Um, now you and your colleagues have coined a this term of indigenous sustainabilities. Can we talk about that?
0: Well, we can talk about indigenous sustainabilities, and I think it's. I like the term. I mean, I like the, the pluralistic nature of it. I like that we're complicating the fact that sustainability is one monolithic enterprise. Um, I think it also recognizes that different indigenous societies have different strategies for achieving sustainable ends that balance different economic models, different environments that they're trying to maintain space in, different cultural patterns, taboos, restrictions, customary law. And you know you can't take Sami sustainabilities and, and put them in, in in New Mexico. You know they're not they're not going to work, right? But there's a diversity of these things, and they need to be diverse. And I think this monolithic approach to sustainability studies and there's the one size fits all is just another. It's a mechanism of green colonialism. You can pretend like it's a green green policy, but when you're putting when you're taking Sami reindeer lands and you're turning them into green energy, how is that different than destroying a river? How is it different than damming the river and ruining the salmon if you're, you're destroying the, the, the reindeer grounds? Um, How is it different putting in a green Arctic rail line so you can urbanize and, and resettle the, the, the Finnish, Finnish side of Sápmi uh, going up to the Arctic Ocean? When it, That again will destroy the reindeer and it'll, it'll bring more settlers up, it'll bring more industry up and will destroy, devastate Sámi ways of life, but railroads are green. We hide behind environmentalism oftentimes, and by "we, I mean colonial societies, in order to justify um, you know, in, enhanced colonization of, of indigenous territories. And that's the disturbing part, because the most dangerous settlers the most dangerous colonizers are the ones who have full conviction in their heart that they're doing what is in the best interest of indigenous people. It's that good intention, that toothy, grinned smile that brought us boarding schools. That's what brought us these, uh, the dams and, and, and mines that have destroyed the indigenous lands and poisoned the rivers it's all good in, it's good intentions it's good intentions for economic development which were used in racist ways in Africa to suppress indigenous cultures to modernize into a post-capitalist economy and or into a late capitalist economy and make permanent economic dependencies and subclasses of people subservient to the the western elite of the global north this is the the aim of many of these projects that hide behind green tech, green technology, green environmental development. And not to say that, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of green power, but it needs to be indigenized. It needs to work for Sami people. You can't use Sami lands to power Nordic states and still call them sustainable states. There is no sustainability if you're stealing somebody else's resource to fuel your own state. That's that's just a, it's a lie. Um, so there are good, but there are better ways to do it, right? And Sami people have to be part of the decision-making process, and the green technologies have to be u- used and incorporated in ways where, that are more sustainable um, for all the diverse peoples who, who inhabit the Nordic countries to achieve uh, multicultural sustainabilities in the north.
1: Right? You, um, if you dam a river for hydropower. The water is renewable. But all of a sudden the reindeer are not renewable and the fish are not renewable and the way of life that depends on those is not renewable.
0: Exactly. And and dams were thought to be renewable. I mean they were thought to be you know this is sustainable tech and even you know, they create all sorts of problems as you know and as you we know, learned in the west, the american west very quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> after after dams went up on so many rivers. Um, you know and you know we need energy and you know energy's good in many ways but you have to consider how we're doing that and who it's who it's impacting how it's a- affecting the fish and the ecosystem and the animals that depend on that shoreline habitat and the reindeer and and so on.
1: Yeah, because our society needs energy. It also needs fish, but the dams have destroyed spawning grounds for fish and Mm -hmm. dramatically impacted their populations. Um, So solutions that have been taken for that is to have fish farms in order to produce fish. Are those sustainable? Are fish farms sustainable?
0: (laughs) Well, in in SOPME, no. (laughs) There's better and worse ways to do fish farming, but if you're... If you're putting a fish fj- fish farm in a fjord, <laughs> fish farm in a fjord, you're putting a fish farm in a fjord. Um, it's causing genetic contamination of wild stocks. It's causing problems with invasive like sea lice that um, get into uh, the wild populations. It's causing like sort of toxic sludge areas from all the the fecal waste from the salmon. Um, so it creates all, all sorts of problems it it helps the fish farmer who can sell their fish at a cheap price but is it really the best solution you know if if we just had healthy fish we could eat those healthy fish instead of ruining depleting those fish and creating an artificial environment for our fish so we can eat for the fish it seems like a lot of work to do to when we could just keep a cleaner environment and have food on the ground, in the water, that we can get anytime. It reminds me too of of a reindeer story in Sweden. Uh, You know, there's wolves and wolves are predators of reindeer and there's always a problem, right? How do you negotiate this with the state? The state maybe wants wolves in some areas, always Sami areas, and Sami people don't particularly like it when wolves eat the reindeer, and so uh, a team of Swedish biologists decide well, the best way we should address this problem is we should take all the reindeer and we should put them up put them in pens, just like you would with cattle, right So the solution to, to Sami problems with wolves doesn't involve you know so selective hunting of problem wolves or better systems of compensation for lost reindeer. Um, it involves acting more Swedish, put everything in a fence and close them off, then the wolves can't get in. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that'll that'll work either.
1: What happened when they tried that?
0: Well, they didn't try it, but they... Okay. Uh, I know that, like, in Minnesota, when there's they some reindeer farms, and you, you increase contamination and fecal contamination, so you're going to increase risks for, like, prion disease or TB in deer herds. You see that on deer farms, which have become very popular in the upper Midwest, um, which, you know, have devastating impacts on deer populations, yet this obsession with the people people's rights to own private property and own animals like supersedes like common sense we'll have deer farms so people wealthy people can hunt trophy bucks at $5000 a pop at the expense of literally all the deer in the state contracting chronic wasting disease because these farms are just biohazards like why why should people be allowed to to contaminate deer in such a way. Like this is a no-brainer. Yeah, we don't do anything because there's this like belief in the sacrality of white male property ownership in this country, which is just just terribly disturbing. It sounds like
1: the king and his royal hunt again. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know what more to say because we know who Robin Hood is. <laughs> it's the Tribble Brothers.
0: <laughs> I love me a poacher. You know, <laughs> is the poachers poachers are um, get a bad rap a lot of times, but poachers are outlaws, and we need our outlaws because they they, they remind us what's important. You know, sometimes you need to break rules in order to understand our own values and understand what's wrong with their value systems. and that's why Robin Hood is so endearing because Robin Hood wasn't afraid of living by natural law that has a sort of deeper authenticity to he- broader human experience than this artificiality of uh, of a royal elite being able to control everything. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Team Robin Hood.
1: Assistant Professor Tim Frandi's book, Inner Sami Folklore, is available now. Links to his book and some of his publicly available, peer-reviewed research can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya-Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbu. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Rana Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.